You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. There are several good reasons for the church to value greatly the best confessions of faith. One reason, as Carl Truman has argued, is the confessions relativize the present and connect us to the past. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, Truman explains, quote, we all know that Christianity is not reinvented every Sunday. We all stand on ground that has been laid for us by many brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us. Yet often we can be tempted to live as if this were not true. This is hardly surprising as we live in an age where the anti-historical forces of the wider culture are powerful and all-pervasive. Whether it is a commercial telling us that the next purchase we make will bring us happiness, or science promising some great breakthrough that will ease our lives, everything around us points to the future as that which is most important and certainly as vastly superior to the past. Now Truman continues, by contrast, Christianity is a religion rooted in history. It was constituted by God's historical actions culminating in Christ, and it comes to us through the faithful articulation and preservation of its message by God's church throughout the ages. That is profoundly countercultural and something of which we need to be constantly reminded. Ironically, it may well be that those who claim no creed but the Bible are actually reflecting merely the spirit of our age in all of its anti-historical triumphalism. Well, Michael, as we take up part two of our discussion of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, what do you think of Truman's argument? Do confessions of faith help us resist the spirit of our age in all of its anti-historical triumphalism? Yeah, I think they do. Um... I really appreciate that quote because I think it does hit the nail on the head in terms of one of the problems that we have to wrestle with, um, that uh, we, we do live in an age which, if it's interested in history, it tends to be interested in, 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 it, in it as a form of entertainment. Um, it's something to while away a few hours. History is not a place to go for regular uh, uh, doses of wisdom. Um, and um, and of course, in recent days, history has become a very contested area, um, which actually, in one sense, I mean, there's good in that because it's forcing us to realize that we are products of the past. And so hopefully some of the the interesting controversy that has arisen regarding uh, race and s social issues vis-a-vis -vis history will force us back to, okay, let's go back to a more fundamental issue, which is what is history supposed to do for us? Um, uh, how is it usable? Uh, how should we read it, etc.? But I think, by and large, our culture is deeply oriented towards uh, the present and the future. Uh, the way in which we prioritize, you know, youth, uh, young people, 
the way that their culture is dominant. Um, and uh, this has been the case actually since my own youth, uh, since the 60s. Uh, if you look at a lot of the popular culture of the 60s, it was deeply distrustful of the past, wanted a break with the past. But in, in, in making those sort of emphases, it was simply reflecting, I think, a larger trend that's been going on since the Enlightenment. Uh, the Enlightenment project in Western culture has uh, been very distrustful of tradition. And the intellectual battles, you know, in the, in the 18th century between somebody like, say, uh, a Thomas Paine on the one hand and an Edmund Burke on the other were battles over, you know, how should we, how should the present be lived in view of the past? And how should we think about political traditions? But that, that's, you know, that's all the way across the board. How should we think about any intellectual tradition, be it in politics, be it in um, philosophy, or be it in theology and church history? So I think uh, um, Truman's quote really kind of really does cut to the chase. And I think one of the ways in which we as evangelicals can orient ourselves to past wisdom is by the use of confessions. Um, I think Christianity right from the get-go is confessional. We've talked a little bit about that already. And the necessity of confessions. And by utilizing a confession that was crafted, you know, in the 1670s and 1680s, uh, we are acknowledging that the past generations have something to say to us. Uh, there may be places where we need to modify that confession. Um, obviously not to the point that it creates a brand new confession and undermines what that confession was seeking to say. But there'll be, there'll be certain things. Uh, so in the 1689 confession, you know, how do we view the, the papacy? Um, that's, a, that's an issue that I think is one that has been long recognized that we, we probably don't come down exactly where the Puritan milieu out of which the 1689 confession was crafted uh, comes down. But I think confessions are very, very helpful because they do, they force us. They're one. They're one. They're one other vehicle that forces us to come to grips with the past. Hymnody does does the same. Um, uh, a liturgy uh, in our free tradition, we don't have liturgies. You know, having something like the Book of Common Prayer, where you're praying prayers that go back to the third and fourth centuries, is fabulous. Uh, we don't have that, but we do have confessions, and they're very helpful. We do, Michael. I, I love your perspective and, and bringing you and Truman into this discussion uh, is so helpful because there is, I think accurately, when he calls it an anti-historical triumphalism. And I have to admit, I, I felt this. I was coming out of seminary. So when I finished my, my master's work, uh, we planted a church in Portland, Oregon, of all places. And I thought it was a kind of radical city then. Uh, and things have changed since 1999 a little bit. But here I was, this church plant, and we had about 100 regular attenders, 80% uh, uh, of those probably members. Uh, but early on, uh, I was feeling this, uh, by God's grace, not a triumphalism in the present, but a real sense that I've got to ground this young church plant in a sense of history, in a sense of, we're not the first to do this, but I tell you, all the church plant gurus back then were saying, you know, everything that's current is best. And here I was, you know what I did? It's very appropriate that we're talking about this. I just thought, what do I do? I've got to somehow ground this 
young, this baby church in a, in a sense of history. So I took up the 1689 Baptist Confession. I reached for a confession. And we, at that time, we did Sunday school. It was just one class. Everybody was welcome. So we had, every, you know, families, singles, individuals, you know, coming to Sunday school. And I just took them through over months um, and over a year, the 1689 Baptist Confession. But what was driving me was this sense of, I, I don't think we've got it all right in the present, and we need help from the past to ground this church in a sense of this stream of of orthodoxy, you know, that, that wasn't going to start with us. So, yeah. But I was feeling that even then. There is a triumphalism, right, about the present, where if it's new, it must be best. And in our digital age, I think that's even more exacerbated than it was when you and I were growing up. Now with every new gadget, it must if it's new, it must be best. Yeah, so when that starts to go into into doctrine. Yeah, we're we're taking our cue from technology. And um, it's one thing to acknowledge, you know, uh, we're using the latest uh, software from Windows. Um, and that is obviously a lot better than, say, a, a using a Commodore 64 computer, which I still re I still remember <laughs> when those came out. And then, I re you know, I and then the, uh, the 289, the 389, whatever. And um, right. I mean, it's one thing to say, OK, technology is helpful in terms of the latest coming out. But it's when we move from technology, we take a principle that is in technology and we transfer it over to other spheres of life, which uh, is, again, interesting that that shows you the prominence of technology in our culture, that it can shape our thinking about other other spheres. But it's when we, we move from technology into other spheres of life and say, well, the more recent is the better. Yeah. Well, a lot of, you know, churches today and pastors today are tempted to think that there's some new innovative way to, uh, for example, teach the doctrine of God or the doctrine of scripture. And, and we want to say, and the 1689 says, well, actually, we're not the first to come to these doctrines uh, over the course of church history. Orthodoxy has been hammered out. There is a faith delivered to the saints that were to, to preserve. And confessions, and this is a good segue into what's the purpose of a confession. That's one of the purposes, right? It can help us with um, historical awareness and grounding our faith in something that is time-tested. Uh, but it can also guard against error, right? Maybe we could talk about some other ways that confessions are helpful or, or ask what's the purpose of a confession, not only to ground us in history, but but to guard us against heresy or against error, how would a confession actually help us do that? Yeah, I mean, the 1689 was designed uh, in part to combat the errors that these Baptists of that period saw in Quakerism, for example. Um, Quakerism was a charismatic movement in which um, the privilege was given to the work of the Spirit in the experience of the believer over the scriptures. So, you know, um, the Quaker kind of statement would be, you know, while we prize the scriptures, uh, they are not God, but it is God living in us that is a surer, a surer and better guide. Well, that's, that's just a, a recipe for a long-term disaster because, you know, my experience, uh, anybody who's pastored a church, uh, you know, for any length of time will find that there's a multitude of of experiences that people go through 
and how do we determine uh, what is what is from the Spirit and what is not from the Spirit? And the historic position has been going back to the Church Fathers all the way through to sounder figures in the Middle Ages uh, into the Reformation and so on, that the Scriptures being Spirit-given, we can use them to test everything that claims to be from the Spirit. Um, so um, that's just one example where the 1689 was used to respond to Quakerism. Well, when I can, when I, when you say something like that, I can jump in. We can even illustrate from the 1689 to your very point uh, about Quakerism and some of these maybe private spirits or private um, inclinations of, of about God. Here, here's Article mm -hmm. One, Section Ten of the 1689 that speaks to that very thing. And of course, here. The confession is echoing the Westminster standards, but let me just read it for our, our listeners uh, because it speaks to that. And that's relevant to our day, right? So here it is. Article 1, Section 10 says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and here it is, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Scripture, delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. So that's a lot of words to say we test everything by the Scriptures, and what a safeguard mm -hmm. against things that could creep in to pollute mm -hmm. the faith. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that whole period, I mean, just to, to, to dwell on that a, a second before I move on to another subject, uh, that whole period from you know the 1670s and 80s onwards all through to the 1730s uh quakerism was a major issue in certain locales uh, one of the major centers was bristol where there was a very strong equally strong baptist community but uh during the seven early 1700s you had quaker prophets and prophetesses you know coming out into the streets giving prophecies um, not that far from where some of the Baptists, you know, would have worshipped in Broadmead Baptist Church or Pithay Baptist Church. And so the confession then was enormously helpful. Um, the, the other thing I was going to say was uh, in the, the late 1600s, you have the emergence of um, the beginning of the Enlightenment, uh, which involves theologically uh, questions about the Trinity. And it's amazing to me that those questions uh, took the form of a kind of re resurgence of Arianism. Uh, they eventually would also issue in things like Deism and Socinianism, which is Unitarianism. But there was a resurgence of Arianism in some of these Baptist churches in the southwest of England. And um, what the uh, association that we call the Western Association did, it was centered on Bristol involved Baptist churches in places like Devon and Somerset and Wiltshire. What they did was they 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 went back to the 1689 and uh, things got so bad they eventually said, um, okay, um, the only churches that are going to be allowed in the association are those who can solidly and wholeheartedly confirm the 1689. And it was a way there of clearly guarding against uh, the insidious nature of Trinitarian error. Uh, by making the 1689 the benchmark, uh, because it obviously has a classical uh, Nicene Trinitarian, that's a Trinitarianism that's based on the Council of Nicaea, um, uh, understanding of the Godhead. So that's, a, again, another good example 
of the confession responding to theological error. Now, the problem, the the, the issue that this raises is that um, these these sorts of things come up again and again. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses are simply a kind of a 19th century version of Arianism. But there are eras in recent days, you know, that relate to uh, things like transgenderism and um, areas of gender issues where the statement of faith, the confession of faith, doesn't address those directly. And so um, there are churches that have added uh, addenda uh, to the statement of faith um, to deal with those. And I, I think that those are, are indeed appropriate um, and necessary. I do too. And, and you're right, every generation might have its challenges. And yet I was revisiting, and I shouldn't say, and yet, I mean, yes, uh, but also... The 1689 has a wonderful statement mm-hmm. on marriage, yeah. doesn't it? So, I mean, it, it's very contemporary in that sense. It speaks to God's good design of marriage, one man, one woman. Uh, and so you're right. I think we do have to, as situations arise, you mentioned transgenderism. There are some issues in our day uh, where we would need uh, to add, perhaps, to a, a confession of faith like the 1689. The framers just not foreseen. Yep. yep some of the things that we would be confronted with. Well, as, I mean, as you know, at, at Southern, I mean, when both of us came on faculty, we had to affirm our commitment to the abstract of principles, which is an abstract of the 1689. Mm-hmm. But then in addition to that, also the commitment to the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy and the uh, Nashville right. Statement, or the, sorry, the Danvers Statement mm-hmm. um, on um, yep. and, and Nashville. Nashville. Yes, now right. too, you're right. So which deal mm-hmm. with issues of gender and marriage. Um, so maybe that's yeah. one way of dealing with it. You, you, rather than adding addenda to the sixteen nine, you simply use a more recent statement. Um, but I, I great point. I, I, I think it is helpful to probably you know in a local church. So we got people coming who are going to be office bearers in a local church. Um, how many statements do you want them to affirm? So. You know, right. okay. I, I mean, I can understand that at a seminary, we've got intellectually minded folk that, okay, we need you to affirm the abstract of principles, the Baptist faith, the message, the Chicago statement of inerrancy, uh, the national statement, the Danvers statement. Okay. But yeah. you try pulling that one at a local church. Um, so I think in a local church, you, 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 you know, okay, our statement of faith is the 1689. Then we we definitely need maybe addenda there. I, I'm here. I'm thinking out loud. Um, well, you're the you, you've been a pastor, yeah, uh, and you you probably know this better than me. Well, you got me thinking, Michael. Maybe that you know we'll have to take this up maybe in more detail in a future uh, episode uh, of of the 1689. I, I want to revisit this. There's just so much to talk about. But the question is, should should a church, for example, adopt the 1689? Baptist Confession of Faith. And I've heard people say, well, it's too restrictive in certain articles. Um, some might say uh, when it uh, when it affirms what appears to be clearly to me a six-day literal creation, so six literal days, is that too confining? Even its statement, a clear statement on definite atonement, is that too restrictive? It's Sabbatarian, right? So if we go to that article 22, it's going to speak to a particular view of the, the Lord's Day. Are those things too restrictive at the local church? And I think there's room to have good, robust, mm-hmm. prayerful mm-hmm. discussions about that. And, and I think it, local churches will come down different on that, right? Uh, 
So yeah, I think that's that's a that's a live question to say should you adopt the 1689? I would like you mentioned earlier probably take out the uh language about the pope. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh not you know that's that's one that we might not adhere to but but it, I hesitate to to want to take out too much, right? I mean pretty soon we're just taking the best confessions and uh, I don't want to treat them like cafeteria style doctrinal statements, even as agreed. I'm recognizing there's some things that we no, might, agreed. Yeah. Um, I think the burden is on us in our day to, the burden is on the one that would say we should remove something. Agreed. Uh, and again, I, you know, <clears throat> dealing with the local church. Um, so you've got the 1689 confession as your church's statement of faith. Uh, now, the office bearers need to affirm that completely. Does the does a person coming mm -hmm. into membership have to agree with all that's in the sixteen nine? Yeah. And I think that's a, and I think that's a different issue um, personally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those who are responsible for yeah. teaching and preaching, leadership in the local church, um, I can see something being required of them that is not required of your ordinary member, who's you know when a, when a person gets converted. Yeah. And within, you know, the space of a number of months is baptized as a believer. And I certainly don't do not believe in baptizing people who are not intending to become members of your local church. Um, mm -hmm. Does that person then at that point, you know, they've been a Christian, maybe three months, six months. I mean, I, I was converted in a, in a February and then baptized within six weeks in April. Um, there's no way that a person in that sort of scenario will have the grasp to be able to respond to the 1689 and right. say, yeah, I affirm all that's in here. They, they just don't know that. Yeah. You mean at that point you didn't have it memorized <laughs> and all the scripture proofs no, I, already, no, I, you know, hidden no, in I, your heart and ready no, to I recall? I, I didn't even know. I don't think I, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have even known about it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think there, I think there is again is a church can have the sixteen hours confession of faith, but what does that mean for the, for the uh, rank and file, quote unquote, the, the members? Yeah, great, great question. I would just want to make sure, and I, I wonder if you'd agree that in, in for example, membership classes, we make mm. it clear, just truth in, in advertising, as it were, that your leadership is going to believe, teach, and confess yep. according to, and then yep. whatever confession yep. of faith. In this case, we're talking about 69. So if that's your confession, you want the members, and you're right, they may be babes in Christ, but they need to know that we're going to raise mm -hmm. you up. We're going to mm -hmm. nurture you in this particular body of yeah. doctrine. Yeah. And uh, this is one with, that would do yeah. really well uh, as an incubator for those for those young Christians, right? Uh, and, and this is a good segue too, Michael, into we've been talking about how a confession of faith can be a... a a protection against error. You brought up things like, um, uh, you know, unorthodox views of the Trinity or whatever. But it's also positively a, an excellent way for your leadership to teach, right, and to ground people in the truth. So it is a hedge, for sure, against error. But it's also a, an incredible body of divinity, to use Thomas Watson's great phrase. You know, the this mm -hmm. body of divinity to raise 
to raise up your people in. So it's a positive teaching tool as well. Yeah, you well, yeah most definitely. I mean, I, what's beautiful about the 1689 mm -hmm. Confession in this regard is that you have uh, some of the very strong classical teaching about who God is and about who Christ is. You know, uh, our Lord is uh, one person, yet two natures, uh, hammered out of the Council mm -hmm. of Chalcedon. And uh, so uh, I, I, I think a church that has the 69 Confession at some point needs to have regular classes, Sunday school classes, some sort of Christian ed, whether it's Sunday school or whether it's Sunday evening or whether it's midweek or whatever, however you do it, where the confession is gone through on a fairly regular basis. Uh, and so and then using the confession as a teaching tool for, OK, here's what it says about God. And here it's reflecting this this um, uh, tradition, uh, which we call Trinitarian or Nicene Trinitarianism from the Council of Nicaea. And this is where that tradition gets it from scripture. Um, and so you could easily take, you know, the articles that deal with God and the Trinity, Christ, uh, the work of salvation, um, and use them to explore scripture and the theology of those various areas as, as it's developed. And 1689 is rich because it's drawing, it's, as we've said, it's drawing from the, the Westminster <clears throat> Confession of uh, Statement of Faith. Um, from the 1640s, which in turn is drawing from various Reformation doctrine documents, and the men who drew up that um, the Westminster Statement of Faith, and then the the other that it's using is the Savoy Declaration. I mean, both of those are drawn up by men who are deeply schooled in, you know, at that point, 1500 years of Christian theology, and so the the the, the 1689 Confession then has a very very rich um foundation historical roots um and it could it it, it it could well serve as a regular teaching tool uh for teaching absolutely uh, theological uh, the, uh, christian theology and michael i've found that so helpful and it's a wonderful thing and just for our listeners it, it, as a pastor it's fairly easy to do because you can start with these beautiful and I do mean beautiful. The best theology is beautiful, right? So you start with these beautiful statements or summaries of a doctrine. And then what's so great about, say, a 1689, we have the scriptural proofs. And then you get to go do exegesis with your people. And you get to say, you just ask this question. Well, is the confession right? Let's go to the text. Let's go to the word of God and see. And, yep. and you can literally take your people through what is, in essence, a wonderful systematic theology volume. Um, and it's your gateway into the Bible. And that's where I want to get, right? That's where you want to get. That's where every pastor should want to get to. I tell my students in my pastoral ministry classes, uh, I, I want to set up classes that that give me gateways into the Word. And I want my, my pulpit, for example, to be mm -hmm. a gateway into the Word. And the best confessions of faith, they're this roadmap that just takes us I know I'm mixing metaphors, but it takes us into the Word of God. It's my excuse yep. uh, to teach sound doctrine, and it helps me do that. Uh, one other thing I wanted to throw by you, Michael, and as I'm noticing our time is is so limited, unfortunately. But but one other real benefit, and I think this is particularly relevant in our day and age, where so many strong leaders in churches are viewed with suspicion. Right? I mean, strong leadership because of maybe some abuses 
of power in the church. They have happened. So I'm not saying these are uh, instances where it was just an appearance of abuse. There's been real abuse. What do you think of this? A, a confession of faith by by adopting one and then teaching according to one and uh, holding leadership accountable to one, it acts as a real delimiting factor or influence on the leadership. And you know what, what I would mean by that? It, it means that, say, your elder board, your pastors, they have authority now over people and they're practicing oversight over the church, but only according to the confession. That's the province we have. So it safeguards, or at least it helps, uh, safeguard leaders from getting out of their lane, as it were, and starting to exercise authority over people in areas that aren't their province. What do, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that has some uh, merit. Um, I don't think the, the confession is um, a guarantee that no. uh, spiritual abuse will not happen. And in fact, I'm sure both of us know of examples where you did have the 69 Confession as a statement of faith in a local church. And nonetheless, there was a degree of um, yep. uh, uh, an abuse of power. Um, yep. But I think it does It does certainly, uh, if, if people know coming into a local church, you know, here's the statement of faith upon under which uh, not only are you placing yourselves uh, in terms of the theology of this church and its praxis, but also um, the the leadership. But you see, one thing one thing that we have lost in Baptist churches um, is that the, all the Baptist churches of the seven, late seventeenth and early eighteenth century, at least in the British Isles, they not only affirmed a statement of faith usually the 1689 i mean it's the statement of faith all through the 18th century for these churches but they also affirmed a a um a covenant mm -hmm. and the covenant dealt with behavior so it dealt with things like um gossip and um spiritual abuse um and how you dealt with uh people who are not who are not believers who are part of your family um etc 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 um yep and um signing you know and th those covenants will be renewed usually on an annual basis yep so that was where you actually dealt with the issues of, of praxis but and, and i wonder if some of the abuse we've seen in recent years has been because we don't have any sort of covenantal arrangements in our churches mm -hmm. um where the entirety of the church uh, commits itself to walking in love, um, etc. I mean, those sort of ideas are in the statement of faith, but they're not the main ideas. Whereas in the covenant, usually about a dozen statements. Um, and um, I, you know, I can think of a, you know, of a, easily half a dozen to a dozen covenants that I've worked through over the years in from the 18th century that deal with, it deals with the actual praxis of the local church. Um, but nonetheless, have, good. I think your, 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 your point does have merit. No, Michael, that's really helpful. And, and hopefully our best church covenants are really the outworking of our confession of faith. You know, whatever that is, mm -hmm. you're right. It's more the application of the sound doctrine that, that we see in our confessions. Well, 
one other question I thought we could briefly, and I'll have to limit ourselves here, but uh, discipline ourselves. Uh, I want to, for the sake of our audience, we've talked a lot about the 1689. We put it in historical context. We've even talked about uh, the merits of having a confession of faith like the 1689. The question that might be looming out there and on the minds of a lot of our listeners, Michael, is, okay, this is all great, but is it biblical? <laughs> is a confession of faith biblical? Is it something that the Bible warrants? Uh, did we just pull this out of thin air and just say, historically, we should have a confession of faith? But what would you point to uh, by way of biblical example uh, for a confession of faith? Do we see any confessions in the Bible? Yeah, I think we do. Yeah. <clears throat> um, a lot of scholars, for instance, of the the letters of Paul will point to a passage like Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Greek actually reads a bit differently, and it would appear to be that Paul has taken that text, which has a confessional nature, may have even been sung, um, and inserted it to make his point regarding the way the Christians in the Church of Philippi should relate to one another. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, mm -hmm. uh, Christ mm -hmm. believed on in the world, uh, preached, uh, preached in the gospel, seen by angels, taken up into glory. Um, we have a number of statements in Scripture. Uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's right, Romans uh, 10. 10. They have a, yeah, yeah. They have, a, they have a creedal nature, a confessional nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, right from the get-go, uh, Christianity is confessional. And you find confessions of faith. In, in contradistinction from, say, Roman religion, um, in Roman religion, um, belief and intention were not important. You had you 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 were expected to participate in various religious rituals, but what you believed about them or about the gods, well that that and what what your what your motivation for doing this, none of that was the, was was a concern of Roman and Greek and Roman priests, but in the in the church by contradistinction. Uh, belief and intention were very important. Mm. Um, you had to believe certain things, and this comes out of the scriptures. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. I mean, right from the right from the very beginning of the Constitution of Israel as a as a yep. nation, you have a declaration, a creedal declaration about monotheism. That's right. Um, and uh, and it's also it's not enough to simply say with my mouth if you believe. You've confessed with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart. So intention is vital. Mm -hmm. Very, very mm -hmm. different from the Greco-Roman mm -hmm. world. And um, so it's it in the Greek and Roman world, there's no such thing as heresy hmm. in one sense. Right. I mean, it, it, I mean that orthodoxy and heresy don't really exist in one sense. But in the church... That sounds like the contemporary church in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, that's like evangelicalism today. There, There is no heresy. I'm kidding. But... Maybe we're more Roman than we yeah. But in the church, you've got um, you've got battles mm -hmm. about heresy because mm -hmm. belief and intention are vital, yep. and they're they're captured in confessions. Well, Michael, as we wrap up this episode, you brought it up a minute ago, but that Philippians two text. This, this is interesting. As people are listening to this episode, we can say this on the authority of the Word of God. At the end of time, everybody will be confessional. Now, <laughs> yeah. what, do, what do I mean by that? At the end of time, Paul says, 
in Philippians 2, verse 11, well, let me back up a little bit. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, there it is, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So not trying to be cute about this. There, there, we will all be confessional at some point, And we're saying, uh, let's be confessional in the church in our day. Amen. Um, thanks, Michael. I'll look forward to our next uh, conversation. Yeah. Say, say, we should say a word about next week. We've got a guest. Um, well, we do. We do. Yeah. That, we're going to continue the series of um, the 69 Confession, looking at certain articles. But next week we have a guest coming, right? So we do. We'll take a break from our 1689, and we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Thomas Kidd, who is uh, currently a, a professor of history at Baylor University, and he has a new biography of Thomas Jefferson coming out—a biography of spirit and of flesh, where he's really looking at the faith of Thomas Jefferson, and uh, I think that's going to be a very uh, stimulating conversation. Beads Podcast is in partnership with h and &E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.